0: Well, it's wonderful to be uh, back with you this morning. Uh, I just have to say how impressed I am with all of you. Uh, late last night, on a Friday night out of all things, and then here you are back 8.30 in the morning. This is the type of of uh, eagerness and love for God. Either that or maybe Pat is forcing you. I don't know. I'll have to ask him later, but... Yeah, that's right. Less time in purgatory. Oh, that's one. That's one way to do it. I think it's it's been tried before. But um, hey, as long as you're here to listen to the Trinity, we'll talk about that later. Pat. Last night uh, I so enjoyed uh, bringing to you the important, essential doctrine of simplicity. Uh, God's unity, or when we talk about the Trinity, what it means for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be one. This morning, we're going to continue that deep dive into, well, the deep things of God. We mentioned this last night, but this, this glorious doctrine of eternal generation, a mysterious one as well, and today, We want to return to it to try to understand what, what is, what is it exactly that distinguishes father from son? I'll ask you to have a finger in Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, and we will get there in a minute. Well, Pat just mentioned a minute ago that our family lives in Kansas city, and yes, I do enjoy barbecue maybe a little too much uh whenever i have the chance i love to take my students um, and there if you've been to kansas city there's so much good barbecue there it's overwhelming but before our family was in kansas city uh we actually lived in london england uh london can be a dark dark place the sun and all of its happiness It's blocked by those imposing gray skies. Now, you may not know this because if you were just a tourist in July, you may not realize that most of the year the city is covered in this blanket of gloom, expunging incandescence wherever it can be found. One year, I was invited back to the States for a conference in Houston, Texas. And I'll never forget it. After a a 14-hour flight over the Atlantic, the plane finally landed. And I walked out of the airport and I was met by a giddy smile of a prosperous blue sky. Its glistening sunshine was coating my vitamin D deficient face. And I felt as if I had altogether been born again. (laughs) Redeemed, brought back to planet Earth after a, a dreary, dispirited exile and with a smile spreading from ear to ear, I would have kissed the grass I was standing on if it weren't for this police officer standing there looking at me as if I, uh, well, as if there were a bolt or two loose in my head, as if I were from another planet. On that happy day, I, I looked up and I just thanked the sun for all of its radiance Did you know that light is one of the most important concepts in the Bible? In fact, it's even used to describe God. The author of Hebrews could have chosen any number of concepts to describe the Son of God, but he chose to open his letter with this one, radiance, radiance. Except Hebrews uses light in a way that differs, at least in this passage, differs from other books of the Bible. You don't have to turn there, but think about the book of James for a minute. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. But notice here, James uses this imagery of light to differentiate between the unchanging, immutable creator of of the great lights of, of the sky and everything else, everything else that is changing or mutable in creation the Father of lights, a phrase that that describes our God as creator of these great lights in the sky. He is unchanging in every way, without variation, says James, without shadow due to change. And therefore, James can say to these first century Christians in the midst of their anxious-filled lives, much like you and me, I suppose. This God is the giver of all good gifts in our ever-changing created order. For all the biblical authors, there is a clear, indisputable distinction between the unchanging, immutable creator and his changing Mutable creation, a distinction that we dare not violate. Does the author of Hebrews locate the Son of God with the Father of lights or with His changing creation? Have you ever asked this question? Have you ever thought about this? In Hebrews, the Son shares the same glory as God. Because he is the very radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of God's nature. Unless we think otherwise, the author then identifies this same son with the creator himself. Rather than the creation. Naming the son as the one through whom God created the world. Look at chapter one. Verse 3, he goes on and says he's the sustainer of the entire cosmos. He upholds the world by the word of his power. Did you know that the author of Hebrews is actually appealing to the Psalms? At the end of Hebrews 1 Psalm 102 comes into view. A passage that speaks of God as Creator. Concluding that what the psalmist says, well, this should be said about God Himself. The Son of God Himself. Hebrews 1.10 You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the very beginning. The heavens, they are the work of Your hands. The Son, then, is not to be identified with the creation, but with the Creator. The Father is not His Creator, like creation in James 1. Instead, the Father is the Son's eternal source, or what some of our church fathers called the everlasting principle. I think this is why, when you look at, say, Hebrews 1.3, Describes the sun as the radiance, the radiance of the glory of God. As one theologian has said so well, as light naturally radiates its brightness, so too God naturally radiates the, His sun. Lights and splendor are one. The sun is the resplendent effulgence of the glory of God the sun is actually the everlucent beaming effulgence of god and his everlasting immensity a theologian by the name of john webster said it this way the sun is the self-diffusive presence of the one who is himself remember what paul says unapproachable splendor God's glory is God Himself in perfect majesty and beauty of His being. The glory is resplendent. Because God Himself is light, He pours forth light. You remember our talk from last night when we looked at the Nicene Creed? When Nicaea describes the Son's begetting or the Son's generation from the Father... Though one that is eternal. Very different than ours. Did you notice the language that's used? It not only says this Son is true God, of true God. It says He is light from light. I don't think that our church fathers were speculating in, in some bad sense. They were echoing the biblical witness. Whether in the Psalms or New Testament passages, passages like this to describe, remember that phrase we learned? The Son's eternal relation of origin. What it means for Him to be Son. The Son is light because He is the eternal offspring of light. Here is our biblical and orthodox doctrine of eternal generation once more. But this time, It's wrapped in this beautiful imagery of light itself. Look at verse 3 with me for a minute. Because the author of Hebrews isn't done with you yet. The author goes on to switch metaphors from light to imprint. How fascinating. The sun is the exact imprint of God's nature, And once again, notice what... Once again, he's confirming the co-equality of this son with the father. Yes, as an imprint, he is not the same person as the father. Same nature, yes, absolutely. But distinguished as the son who is from the father, much like an imprint from its originating template or source. This concept of imprint does not, and listen carefully, it does not undermine or distract from everything we learned about radiance, but it actually complements it in every way. For if he is the exact imprint, did you hear that? The exact imprint. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 2? In the form of God. Well, then, if this is true, then He is begotten from the Father's nature. Nothing less than true God representing the divine essence itself. Radiance of the glory of God, imprint of God's nature, both of these accentuate the Son's eternal origin from the Father's essence. Now, if we had loads and loads of time. I suppose it would take us weeks, perhaps. We could look at this idea in so many other ways. In my book, Simply Trinity, I call this the mosaic. Have any of you ever seen a mosaic? It's striking, isn't it? All the different colors, no matter where you stand in the room, it's almost as if you, you're seeing the same thing, but in a, from a new vantage point. There is a mosaic of eternal generation. In other words, it's not just a chapter and verse. We've sometimes missed this in the past. No, it's so much more. Scripture presents us from beginning to end with a mosaic. The language, for example, in John's gospel of begetting. Why does John keep using this language? He's referring He's assuming in so many ways that this is the Son who is eternally begotten from the Father. And here, even in Hebrews, we've seen this language of light. But if we were to survey the Scriptures, you would see so much more of this colorful mosaic. John 1, what does John say? To open his gospel. This is the Word of God the Word of God. John 5, Jesus Himself says, well, He goes to this language of life. Just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Colossians 1 names the Son as the image of the invisible God. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, I think here He's, not doing something new, but he's building off of the foundation of the Old Testament, of Proverbs perhaps, Proverbs 8, which talks about wisdom. And here Paul says, Christ, who is this son? He's the very wisdom of God. Have you ever noticed the way that Matthew opens his gospel? Echoing a passage like Micah 5 in Matthew 2, when He seems to be saying Jesus himself is the ancient of days. Well, we could go on, but this doctrine of eternal generation, it's manifested in one of the most powerful ways of all. We almost miss it. It's manifested in the very revelation of the gospel itself. The Son is sent by the Father to become incarnate in redemptive history because this is the Son who is begotten, generated by the Father, but from eternity. Eternal generation is not found in a mere verse, but it's the warp and woof of Scripture's entire story. I think this is a correction, isn't it? to maybe some of the ways that we read the Bible, our eyes need to be opened to its broader horizons. But what does it mean exactly for the Son to be begotten or generated by the Father? Well, of course, this is a mystery, which makes it very difficult to describe, right? But maybe we could say this if we just had A sentence? From all eternity, the Father communicates the one, simple, undivided divine essence to the Son. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but in the last century, we have done a terrible job of preserving, confessing, understanding this truth. All too often, we've either neglected it, rejected it, or tried to read something human into it, projecting something of our own experience into it. And when approaching this mystery, we all too often humanize God in the worst ways. We need to be reminded afresh to rid our minds of anything carnal, anything impure, When we approach this doctrine. Now what might that be? Well, I call these the nine marks of an unhealthy generation. Nine marks that should not characterize the eternal generation of the son. These aren't new to me by, by any means. In fact, if you go back in history and look at some of the great thinkers of the past on whose shoulders we stand on, what we might call the Nicene tradition, named after that Nicene creed, you'll see many of these pop out. Let me just mention them. We're just going to rattle through them. And then I want to focus on one of them that is extremely important. So these are nine things that eternal generation does not mean. And notice, when we are describing an infinite, eternal, incomprehensible God, sometimes the best way for us to understand anything at all is to understand what He is not. So what does eternal generation not mean? What can it not involve? First, there is no division in God's nature The father doesn't break off a piece of divinity for the son. It also doesn't involve a multiplication of the divine essence. The father doesn't multiply the essence so that the son now has his own separate divine essence. There's also no priority and no posteriority. In other words, there's no before, there's no after. Remember our talk last night? Isn't this what tripped Arius up so much? Couldn't think of this except in those terms. The father is not superior to the son, nor is the son before or after the father. Remember, this is an eternal begetting. And then I'm going to throw a whole bunch in a pile here. There's no motion. There's no mutation. There's no alteration. And there's surely no corruption that takes place in God. There's no change in God that takes place. The Father and Son don't morph into something else. There's no corruption. Divinity in all of its perfection is not compromised. And then there's... Two last ones that we need to mention as well. There's no lessening in God. There's no reduction in either the Father or the Son. And finally, there, there is no idea of time or temporality. Remember, this is the eternal Son. Now, we don't have time to look at all of those, though each one is so important, keeping us, remember, from those ditches on the side of the road, sometimes even heretical ditches. But we could take time to maybe touch on one of them that tends to be a ditch we fall into too often. The son's generation, this begetting from the father, it involves no priority No posteriority and certainly no inferiority. It designates order in the Trinity alone. Now, I just mentioned that the Son is begotten by the Father. But unlike our human experience, the Son's begetting, this generation, it is eternal. It is timeless. When you read that Nicene Creed, you may pick this up when it says "before all ages." And if it's eternal, then the Son is not the generation of a lesser being. Suppose maybe he's made in time or before time. No, it's the generation of a Son who is equal in deity with his with his Father. But the reason the Son is not inferior to the Father is because the one divine essence, you remember this language? It wholly subsists, W-H-O-L-L-Y, in the Son. Why? Because He is begotten from the Father's nature. True God of true God. There can be no reduction in the begetter's substance or nature in the generation of his son. The father begets his son, and the two are, to return to that key word, the two are consubstantial. Meaning they are to be identified by the same, hear that? The same divine essence. So there's no priority. There's no posterior, posteriority, and there's no inferiority. Consider the biblical imagery of light once again. And this isn't just in Hebrews. You could look at John chapter 1, for example, when you go home today. Why is it that... why What, what makes it so possible for us to say with the Nicene Creed, light from light... Did you know that there were church fathers like Gregory of Nazianzus? Remember all these Gregories? Hard to keep them straight, right? They also appealed to this imagery of light. And they did so in their day to counter that Arianism we talked about last night. Or what we might call a subordinationism. Remember those Arians said... The son must be inferior to the father. When they described this, they said, well, he must be inferior to his cause and therefore subordinate to the father. But how did Gregory respond? Well, he went to this imagery of light, to the son and he said, it is the cause of light, but by no means is light inferior to its source. In essence, they are one and the same. How much more so with God? Is not the divine essence, as we learned, is not it one, simple, inseparable, eternal, unchanging? Why would we think any less? Of the Son, yes, the Father is the principle in the Godhead. they said the principle who is with, without principle unbegotten, but that does not mean that the Father and Son are anything but co equals to read hierarchy of any kind into these origins is to abuse them, even manipulate them. And listen to this, listen to this careful language that Gregory used. The father may be the principle without principle, but he is the principle in which there is no priority. He said this, they do not have degrees of being God or degrees of priority over against one another. That's often how we work, right? but not with God. No, they are not sundered in will or divided in power. You cannot find there... Listen to this. This is so profound. You cannot find there any of the properties. Some? No. None of the properties inherent in things divisible. The Godhead exists undivided, he said. Undivided. So, hierarchy, priority, these are precluded by the very nature, will, power, glory that the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit hold in common. Unfortunately, some today have compromised the Son's unity with the Father in nature, will, power, and glory. They've tried to have their cake and eat it too, believing they can affirm the Son's equality to the Father, but still subordinate the Son to the Father. They do not merely have, say, the incarnation in view, or what we might call the the whole economy of salvation. Believing instead that, well, this Son... He's actually subordinate to the Father as Son. Apart from the world. Apart from history. Apart from salvation. Sure, He may be equal in essence, but He's subordinate in role, they say. The Father in this view becomes a greater glory, a greater authority, a greater supremacy than the Son. Now, in light of all that we've learned last night and this morning. What are we to think of this? Maybe you've heard this before. Let me give you just a few pointers that I think can help us keep us on that road without swerving to the right or the left. First, we must be very careful, very careful, that we don't assume that the persons of the Trinity are persons just like you and me. Isn't that where everything goes wrong? Just like persons in our human society. Notice, isn't it so easy to just make that leap? This is how we work as persons in our society. That just must be the same with God. When we slip into language like, relationships or roles we run the risk of elevating one person over another as if each person is independent with their own individual will perhaps or their own center of consciousness as if something like power or glory or authority can be exclusive to one person like the father but kept away from the other persons the son and the spirit exclusive. What am I saying? We need to be careful that we don't turn our biblical and orthodox trinity into our social paradigm of individual agents that each require their own separate volitional faculties. To do so is to flirt with the heresy of tritheism. Let's not forget that the persons are distinguished by one thing alone. Remember this? I'm going to keep saying it. You're going to get sick of me saying it. Eternal relations of origin. If we insert anything else like roles of hierarchy, we compromise the one undivided, simple essence, will, power, and glory that Father, Son, and Spirit have in common. Here's another pointer that I think we need to pay attention to. We must play by Scripture's categories rather than our own. And notice here, we're talking about how we read our Bibles. It doesn't get any more practical than this, does it? We must... Be careful to distinguish between God in Himself and God in relation to the world. That's been the problem of the last century. We have conflated this entirely. We've collapsed the two. We risk conflation whenever we look, say, at the incarnation and we project anything and everything that occurs back into the entire Trinity apart from creation. If we see the Son submit to the mission the Father gave Him, we have to be careful that we don't assume that for the Son to be Son in the Godhead, apart from creation and salvation, He must be subordinate. That would be a colossal mistake. A better interpretation of Scripture, and I think that you probably already interpret Scripture this way, maybe without even realizing it. A better interpretation pays attention to the different ways that Scripture speaks about Jesus. Dr. Fesco did alluded to some of these already and did such a fine job of pointing these out. Sometimes Scripture will speak of the Son in the form of God. Like when Jesus says he is one with the Father in John 10. Other times, Scripture refers to Jesus in the form, what? What am I about to say? You know it. In the form of a servant, right? Philippians chapter 2. Like when it refers to how he humbled himself. How extraordinary. This is the Son of God. And He humbled Himself. Yes, humbled Himself even to the point of death. Still, other times, Scripture may refer to the way the Son is sent from the Father. Describing how this mission of salvation is even going to take place in the first place. But notice, right? This is where you need to be careful Bible interpreters. When you open the Scriptures, notice, if we confuse these, if we confuse, say, form of God with form of a servant, we risk humanizing God, projecting whatever occurs by virtue of Christ's human nature into the whole trinity a final pointer. We must not miss the whole point of the incarnation. If Jesus' submission to the Father in the incarnation is something He does anyway, something that just defines Him as Son in the Trinity apart from the world, apart from salvation, a mere continuation of eternity... Then the scandal of the incarnation and its amazing grace, it's lessened, it's lost, it is cheapened. Isn't this what Paul's after in Philippians 2-8? Have you ever noticed the contrast here? I'm afraid that we've read it so much, it doesn't, it doesn't make us Cringe at the thought of it. Being found, notice what he says here, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Don't miss this. Obedience was not something... That the Son just does anyway because He is subordinate to the Father, whether or not the world even exists, in the form of God as the Eternal Son. No, the Son had to humble Himself. First, He had to be, to be incarnate. To become obedient. Notice here, the contrast in Hebrews 5 as well, Hebrews 5-8. This is striking. Although he was a son, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Incarnate, humiliating obedience is Scandalous, precisely because it's not something the Son of God does in glory within the imminent life of the Godhead apart from the world, apart from salvation. He did not obey for His own sake, but for yours, which is why this grace is so amazing to begin with. What then are the implications? Of this doctrine of eternal generation, what are the implications then, say, for your salvation? Let me just mention two. First, the new birth, regeneration. Unless he is born from the Father, from all eternity, we have little confidence that we can be born again and enter into the kingdom of this Son. You remember Jesus' words in John 526? For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. If this is not true, then the Son cannot give life to you who so desperately need it. Friends, this should empower your evangelism. We do not stand here holding out to to the world a Savior who hopes, who just wishes somehow, some way, He can turn this world around. We hold out to a world lost in the death of darkness, a Savior who can raise the dead to life. I think it's for this reason that Augustine, Boldly summoned unbelievers everywhere to look to none other than the only begotten son. Listen to what he says here. What about you, soul? You were dead. You had lost life. Was that you? Is that you? Listen to the Father through the Son. Arise, receive life. In order that the life which you do not have of yourself, you may receive in the one who does have life in himself. If Augustine's words sound strange to you, perhaps a more familiar tune will help Maybe one you've you sing every Christmas. Hark the herald angels sing. Do you remember the third stanza of Charles Wesley's timeless hymn? Hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, SUN light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Apart from the only begotten son. Begotten from the father from all eternity. We have no confidence, no assurance that we can be reborn. The sons of earth only receive their second birth if this Prince of Peace is heaven-born. Second and last, what about your adoption? If Jesus is not the eternal, the only begotten Son, as John's Gospel says, do you have any hope? Do you have any right to be so Bold to call God your Father in the first place? Friends, only if He is the Son of the Father by nature can we boldly approach the throne of the Father by grace. The Father through His Son has accomplished our redemption as Dr. Fesco taught us last night. And we, as a result, are the recipients of the Son's grace a thousand times over. Is this not what Paul assumes when he writes to the Galatians, Galatians 4? In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That is you. You have that privilege. We, as His adopted sons, have life in the eternal Son. And through Him, the Spirit communicates to us all, all, all of the Father's benevolence. As recipients of His everlasting grace, His unceasing mercy, we cry out to Him. He invites us to cry out to Him. Abba, Father. With every confidence that you will be received as sons in His Son. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It is only because Jesus... "...is the eternally begotten Son, that He is able and qualified to descend into the depths of this God-forsaken world, be born as a babe in a manger, and ascend back to His Father with a host of newborn sons in His wake. Unless He is born from the Father from all eternity... He cannot be sent from the Father to be born as a man in salvation history, nor can He ensure that those who have trusted in Him as the only begotten Son of God will in fact be adopted as sons themselves. Apart from His eternal Sonship, we have no hope that we might be adopted as sons and receive all of the benefits of our union with the son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we cannot believe how unbelievable it is that We were your enemies, and now we are your friends. No, we are even called your children, invited, invited to come to you and receive all the grace that we have that's guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit as heirs. But Lord, may we be reminded this morning that this is only true. It is only possible if, Jesus, you are who you say you are. as we think about our union with Christ, may we never forget that you are the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father from all eternity. And on that, we rest our hope. In the name of our Savior, amen.